what I'm going to present is Trainwreck, Addressing Complex Pharmacotherapy with the Inherited Patient. And you have the buzzer. Yeah, it's not working. Okay, as far as disclosures, I do not have any, and neither does Dr. Gourlay. Everybody's been here. This is Dr. Wayne's primary care clinic. Come on, come on, Dr. Wayne, it's either one or the other. How many of this audience have been faced with a situation, a patient comes into your office, sometimes with records, sometimes without records, they're already on pharmacotherapy, and you have to make a decision. And their previous doctor either didn't want to prescribe anymore, left town, lost his license, died, retired, one of many things. What do you do? What do you do? You feel damned if you do and damned if you don't. Damned if you don't, then you have the patient very angry or, very, or going suffering. Damned if you do, you have the regulatory agency looking over your shoulder in regards to prescribing controlled substance. Very difficult, this common problem that we all face each day. The objectives of this particular session are number one, assess prescription drug problem in America, discuss the CDC guidelines on opioids and chronic pain, appropriate, appraise what is appropriate pharmacological instability, judge the importance of documentation. I want to emphasize that. If you don't document it, it doesn't exist. Is there a prescription drug problem in America? Well, the givens of this session, if you aren't sure there is a prescription drug problem in America, this session is probably not for you. You should go to tables and gamble a little bit. But we could dis discuss and debate the magnitude and the solution to the prescription drug problem. There's no question that we have a prescription drug problem. The amount of scripts that are written are, are multiplying each year. And the people, unfortunately, who are having fatal deaths secondary to prescription medicine keeps on increasing. If you don't think prescribers have a role to play in either the problem or solution, this session, again, is probably not for you. You're prescribing a drug each day to your pain patient that could be part of the solution, part of the problem, or both, depending upon the particular, the particular evaluation of your patient and his or her um, behavior when you give the script. For some point, for some patients, their pain medicines are both the problem and the solution at the same time, and these are often very, very complex issues. The givens of this section, if you think the answer to a prescription drug problem is simply to stop writing opioid prescriptions, this session may or may not be for you. Contrary to popular belief, both chronic opioid users do not stop using opioids easily. You need a rational plan that considers the general physiology issue as well as the individual issues of the patient has in stopping or tapering a medicine. But if you're feeling unsure what to do with your existing chronic pain patients or in, those you inherit from another practitioner, those patients are clear, and especially those patients who are clearly outside the current CDC guideline, this session is definitely for you. But if you're feeling unsure about what to do with your, but if you believe that a bad outcome for your patient is unacceptable, even if you're not technically the one prescribing the problem drug, again, this session is for you. 
But if you believe the careful risk-benefit analysis needed long before some arbitrary daily morphine equivalent dose is reached, again, this session is for you, because we're going to address all these situations. So the key elements of this program are distinguishing between rational and irrational pharmacotherapy. A patient could come to your office, and you're perfectly comfortable with the pharmacologic regimen that they're on. Or your, the second, issue, second part is that you come, generally the pharmacological program is kind of good, and you just have to do kind of tweaking, to, and you're very comfortable prescribing. Or the third could be that you wouldn't prescribe it under any circumstances, and it's called desperation pharmacotherapy, and you don't want it. What do you do in that case? So you have to distinguish between rational and irrational pharmacotherapy. Approaching the problematic medication user, is a problem of pattern abuse? Is there a problem simply with per diem dose? Is it atrogenic versus patient-driven aberrant behavior? Again, we're going to address these. Because when Doug finishes speaking, we're going to have um, cases that we're going to hopefully that you'll participate in. And the, the histories will be very short in order to make a point, And then we'll go into the meat of the discussion. And then you want to develop a rational approach to medication rotation and taper and discontinue. And notice I didn't say detox. And Doug will go over that. What do you mean? So now we have the CDC guidelines. We, the CDC guidelines say no non-pharmacological and non-opioid therapy is preferred. Of course it is. But the opioid therapy shouldn't be the first choice, nor should it be the last choice. It should be a clinical choice when you use it and when you decide not to do it. Before opioids are established, establish a realistic treatment goal as far as establishing what is the baseline pain and function. Let me see a show of hands. Who would start hypertensive medicine without doing a blood pressure? Who would start insulin without doing a fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C? So why in the world would you start a controlled substance treating for pain unless you have a baseline of what their pain is as you start the treatment and what their function was before their injury now, what their function is over the last week or so, and what is the patient's goals? What are, are they realistic? I'm not going to make a patient pain-free. And literature clearly shows you improve, the, you improve the patient's quality of life immensely if you can reduce the pain by 30, 40, or 50 percent. You want to go over the risk and benefits assessment and discussion with the patient. Begin with immediate release rather than sustained release opioid preparation. And here has the most controversy, and Doug will go over this in greater detail, Start at the lowest effective dose and avoid doses of greater than 90 morphine milligrams equivalents per day. The CDC guidelines define acute pain as less than three days, rarely greater than seven days. And you want to start at the lowest effective dose and as possible. You want to evaluate the harm, benefits and harm after four or five weeks after starting opioid therapy and then whatever interval that you think is appropriate for the next visit. You want to evaluate the risk factors, including possible naloxone rescue. Review the PMP program, if it exists in your state. And to my knowledge, there's only one state. I think Missouri is the only state in the, in the country that does not have a PMP. You're in drug testing. That's another open issue. Should I do presumptive testing, which is immunoassay? Should I do definitive testing, which is more expensive, which is chromographic testing. What is, how frequently should I do the urine drug test? Should I do it every visit? Should I do it on the first visit before I write a prescription? Again, there's a lot of controversy in this particular area. The key, what you want to know with urine drug test is what question you want to answer by your test. 
avoid concurrent prescriptions of sedatives versus, and benzo, such as benzodiazepine, offer and obtain evidence-based assessment and treatment of patients with opioids, of, with, especially patients with substance use disorder. So where is the controversy? Well, most of the CD guidelines are pretty straightforward. They really are contentious point is the arbitrary land and assign drawn at 90 morphine milligram equivalents. And Doug, why don't you go over this and take it from here? Okay. You know, the, it, it's helpful to think that the CDC guidelines are a fact, and, and you either accept facts or you rebel against them. And I think while the CDC guidelines are well short of perfection, they do offer some interesting points. And part of what we're going to be talking about today if you're in a state where there are mandatory absolute lines in the sand that you have to follow, we'll help you assess uh, methods of, of, achieve, of achieving the, those goals. We'll also help you look at the reasons why morphine equivalence as a concept was brought forward and also why when you go above a certain point, you start to get into diminishing returns. In the parlance of Vegas, you're starting to throw good money after bad. And so the really contentious point is, why 90? And, and many people have asked, is it even uh, scientifically valid to compare opioids with so many different variables, cross-tolerance, individual tolerances, uh, depending on how much uh, and how long they've been exposed to this class of drugs, in terms of equivalency? And, and again, while it's less than perfect, it's a, it's a novel way of asking people who are looking at different drugs and in different clinical settings to be aware that as you start to get to certain points, these arbitrary lines in the sand Risk goes up and reward goes down. And that's really, I think, what we're talking about here. And that's what the cases we're going to be discussing lead towards. So why not 90? Why not 120 or perhaps even 200? And interestingly, all those numbers have been proposed. And it's about statistics. It's about risk versus reward. And so while they've all been proposed at some point, uh, the sense of urgency has led to regulators adopting certain hard and fast lines in the sand. And the problem with that is if, if you've been at this long enough, you know it was a sense of urgency, the unmet need of pain, that led us to drop our guard around opioids. And so to a degree, we're at the risk now of watching the pendulum swing well beyond where it belongs, which is at the middle, uh, back into prohibition. And, uh, and that's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for your patients. So here's what we know. And these are facts. As morphine milligram equivalence dose rises, risk increases. And 100 milligram equivalent seems to be a dose where this risk becomes problematic. And I say problematic because a lot of you are going to have patients in your practice who basically uh, the phrase, it's not great, but it's the best of a bad situation, is going to apply. The problem is when a regulator, Department of Justice, comes in and looks at your practice, they're going to agree with you halfway. They're going to agree it's a bad situation, but they're not going to agree it's the best of anything. And they're not going to agree because you have, by not addressing the fact that they're in excess of the CDC guidelines, you haven't addressed an opportunity that they feel you should be engaging your patient in. As dose becomes excessive, the likelihood of achieving acceptable treatment outcomes in pain relief and function will decrease. This is the, the notion of desperation rather than rational pharmacotherapy. And you'll also find yourself in polypharmacy, and that's going to be especially difficult when you have benzos plus opioids, benzos plus opioids plus stimulants, which is the trifecta of the regulator investigation. When you have an upper, a downer, 
and something that tweaks your horizontal hold, you're going to be in a hard place to find an expert who agrees that that was a good way to go with things. And yet, at the time, it's going to make sense. Because in order to manage higher and higher doses of opioids, you're going to get excessive sedation. In order to manage the excessive sedation, it's going to seem logical to go into stimulant classes of drugs. And as the stimulant class of drugs increase, your patient is going to have trouble sleeping, and so benzodiazepines are going to make sense. It seems to make sense. It's not an effective way of managing the problem. But what is missing from the CDC guidelines, and to my way of thinking, missing from all guidelines we deal with, is they're clearly oriented toward tomorrow. What do you do with the patient who comes in tomorrow who's opioid-free and you're contemplating the decision to put them on opioids? That's vastly different than many of the patients I'm sure you have in your practice who either you started on opioids 10 or 15 years ago or someone else started on opioids. And whether it ever was a good idea to have initiated a trial of opioid therapy given what we understand now, if they've been on opioids for 10 or 15 years, they have a legitimate reason for being on opioids today. And probably for a number of days in the future until you can optimize their pharmacotherapy. That's really the reason we wrote a paper following universal precautions called Universal Precautions Revisited, Managing the Inherited Pain Patient. I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Because what it basically says is, play the ball where it lies. If you have a patient who's on a high dose of opioids, figure out how you can motivate the patient from where they are to where they need to be. That's the readiness to change paradigm. It doesn't seem to be a concept that the regulators are terribly familiar with. Uh, they seem to think that once you know something, you should just magically change everybody to rational pharmacotherapy. It won't work like that. And we have evidence in states where there has been a prohibitionist approach to medical availability of, of opioids that they turn to heroin. And there was a paper uh, recently published, the punchline of which was, who could possibly have imagined that people would, normal people would start shooting heroin? And the answer is anybody who has a half a clue about how addiction works and how desperate a person is, whether they have the disease of addiction or not, how desperate they will be if they're in acute withdrawal. So this is the concept that aberrant behavior is interesting to identify, but equally important and much more challenging is to identify what it means and then to identify its ideology. It might surprise some of you to know that you can be driving aberrant behavior in your patients, and they're reacting to you. So a patient who comes into your practice who's, oh, crippled up and, and uh, leaning terribly into things, terrible dysfunction, complaints of pain, 9.5 out of 10, but as soon as you start writing that prescription for oxycodone, they're looking at you thinking, have you done something with your hair? You know, have you, have you, you've lost weight, haven't you? You're really looking good. And you know that's abnormal. It shouldn't go from night to day. And yet, if everything this patient has heard you say over the past six months or six years is, I can't keep going. The noose is tightening, my friend. I'm going to have to do something. But today isn't the day I'm going to drop the hammer. Today isn't the day you're going to have to deal with the fact that I may not prescribe for you. That'll drive people to do absolutely insane things. And it's iatrogenic. We're doing it. If we set boundaries so tight uh, such that every person, normal or otherwise, keeps stepping out of bounds, you lose the discriminating factor of whether they're stepping out of bounds because they're broken or because you're setting unrealistic expectations. And some of those expectations, sadly, are driven by regulators. So how do we determine who might the exceptions be? You know, any guideline, by definition, means 
that there are going to be people who fall off the edges, and quite appropriately so. But how do you document these exceptions? And what happens if you have a practice where 99% of your practice is an exception? Does that mean you're a defiant doctor? The guidelines simply don't apply to you? That will be the first blush interpretation of the regulator. When all of your practice is outside of the scope defined by the CDC, you will be asked to explain why you're unique. And anyone in the audience who does addiction medicine knows being unique is a bad thing in our line of work. It means you're special, and if you're special, it's a whole differential diagnosis. And regulators don't like to treat softly and gently with readiness to change. They like to bring a hammer down, and they like to take licenses away and restrict. So how do you take the patient from where they are to where they need to be in terms of medication management? And what's a reasonable time frame? That's what I hope we're going to be able to discuss today because there are many people that I've met and Howard have met over the years who think a rapid taper is three months, six months, or a year. And that's nonsense. That's just prolonging misery. Contrary, again, to popular belief, for some people there is no rate of discontinuation that can be slow enough or clever enough to totally eliminate withdrawal. That doesn't mean withdrawal isn't manageable. That doesn't mean there are stupid things you can do that will make it unlikely for them to succeed. That's absolutely true. I've seen some absolutely cockeyed um, examples of thinking that because it was easy going from here to here, where here is a ridiculous dose, going from here to here where here is zero should be as easy. It doesn't work like that. The bottom of the taper is invariably harder than the top of the taper. And that makes sense, because at the top of the taper, there's a vast excess of agonist ligands. And these agonist ligands don't represent what the patient needs. They represent what the patient can tolerate. And these are some of the subtleties I hope we can get into when we talk about the cases here. And we have to look at the concept of readiness to change. I hope there aren't many people here that would imagine three strikes in your route has any place other than in baseball. Because more often than not, three strikes and you're out in medicine is you do the same thing three times and you get the same result three times and so you fairly feel comfortable in discharging the patient from the practice. We would much rec more recommend uh, abandoning a molecule than abandoning a patient. If you fire the molecule uh, and you do it for reasons of safety and you document it carefully, nobody will ever come after you. On the other hand, if you fire the patient because you're angry at them, because they lied to you, because they did what people with substance use disorders do, then you may well find yourself with a complaint that starts off, doctor knew or ought to have known. And that's the resonant cord that a lawyer puts on the top of the heading of, of the subpoena that comes your way in the claim of action. So we have to recognize that patients have to change, but so too do we. And most patients don't have the opportunity to come pl to places like pain week. You do, and you hopefully, as a result of what you learn on Saturday, can do things differently on Monday when you get back to your office. And you can play with some of these concepts and see how they fit into your office and into your practice. And you'll be surprised to know. If you ask a patient, do you ever run out of medications early, and they answer no, the next question you should ask is, well, what's the most you've had to take in 24 hours? And you may be surprised to find they double the dose. They occasionally triple the dose. They're borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today. 
ask your patients, have you ever found yourself where you had to borrow from tomorrow to pay for today? That phrase seems to resonate in every language uh, in places that I've spoken to. When you ask your patient that, it's non-judgmental. It's, it's asking, what have you had to do to get by? Then the follow-up question is, if you borrow from tomorrow to pay for today, what do you do when you don't have enough? It's never better when you don't have enough medication if you're chronically taking an opioid class of drug or benzodiazepine or a gabapentinoid. When we're optimizing pharmacotherapy, we have to consider taper and continuation. And sometimes being on a lower dose is a win. But more often than not, a lower dose is a trap because what goes down also can go back up again. And some of you will find that tapers stall and some of you will find that tapers actually turn out to be titrations, where the patient is actually increasing the dose, and you find out that they happen to have a little bit of extra medication at home in their closet, or they reached into their uh, house coat and they found a bunch of pills. The, the reasons will be myriad, but the important thing will be you're not going to be where you think you are with your patient. So how do you deal with minimizing the physiologic and the pharmacologic consequences of withdrawal? Most of it has to be with education. Part of it is on our side, part of it is on the patient's side. You need to understand how long it takes for the body, typically, to clear morphine. If a patient comes into you and they're on day two after being abstinent, and you say, well, it'll probably be better tomorrow. Hang in there. It won't be. It's better after day three, and it could be a real mother on day three. But day four gets better than day three, day five gets better than day th four, and as long as they know that's the direction they're moving, most people can tolerate that if you help them. But indeterminate sentences are not tolerated well uh, by people who have either substance use disorders or coping skillopenia, as my friend Howard would say. We have to document what we're doing. You know, insurance companies often consider the bad guys, and in Canada, uh, insurance companies will sometimes arbitrarily refuse to do something until you pick up the phone and you shift the responsibility back to the individual who's making that decision not to support your plan. And if your plan is reasonable and finite and has a game plan involving referral if necessary, or at least landmarks, most insurance companies are, un are, are reluctant to accept the liability of saying that we're not going to support a reasonable plan. But you have to shift that responsibility to them and that's often done with a, a very polite and cordial letter that says, I understand your need to reject this. However, I also understand that you respect the fact that you're responsible for the adverse consequences. Most people don't get paid enough to do that. Documentation. The medical record must clearly establish the thought process used to come to the proposed treatment plan. It's really as simple as that. It's not just a an, an, uh, memory aid for you. It's so that somebody who follows you, it's so a regulator, it's so the next doctor who's taking care of your patient can understand what you were thinking. Even if you don't get it right, as many of us do, it'll at least show that you were thinking about the relevant uh, aspects of the case. And as Howard said earlier on, detoxification, only in the United States of America, which makes you unique, um, is different than tapering. And yet... Taper means yesterday's dose, by and large, was greater than today's dose. But when you introduce the word detox, you're entering into an area of the law in America that says 
unless you're an, an opiate treatment provider, you cannot detox an individual using the opioid class of drugs, except within the Data 2000 Drug Addiction Act of 2000 paradigm. So any doctor who starts an opioid is welcome to taper and taper to discontinue, but they're not necessarily welcome to detoxify. If your treatment plan departs from currently accepted standards, it has to be clear in the documentation why that departure is reasonable. And more often than not, the departure is part of a longer range plan, which means we're going to capitalize on the ability to drop fairly heavy and quickly at the beginning, but we may have to slow down towards the end. Many of these cases are going to be cases you inherit from practitioners in the community. We did terrible harm by extrapolating a pharmacology principle of full agonists have no ceiling into a clinical paradigm that said no ceiling means no limit. There has always been a limit to opioid class of drugs as there is for any class of drug. And that's where risk exceeds benefit or side effects exceed therapeutic goals. Now what about clinical concerns? Think about change as an opportunity, but also the value in tightening the limits and boundaries when you do that, if you give a person a taper and then still give them one month or three months or whatever is your usual and customary dosing interval or a prescription interval, some will do okay, but many won't. They'll stall the taper. They'll put off the dose reduction until they get towards the very end, and then they'll try to catch up. And that's not the way to do a taper. On the other hand, if you give them a couple of weeks at a time and you measure things out, it's like giving an allowance. It's harder to get into trouble with 50 cents a week than it is to get $5 and be asked to stay in bounds for that entire period of time. Consider pill loads. Are you all familiar with the term pill load? Pill load is a, a term we coined in a paper a number of years ago, which basically says there's a difference behaviorally between giving a person one tablet three times a day for seven days, that's 21 tablets, versus giving a patient take up to two tablets three times a day, 21 tablets. That's basically the more tablets you have, the greater the pill load you've given. And the problem with that is when you have a big bottle of pills, they seem inexhaustible. As that bottle becomes empty, the inexhaustible supply becomes panic-driven. You can use in some of the states that you come from a concept of do not fill until. And I don't know, obviously, what it is in each and in every individual state, but do not fill essentially says that you can write serial prescriptions to be dispensed by the pharmacist on certain dates, all appropriately memorialized to the date that the whole set were written, so that instead of having the patient come in every three months or every four months, you can have them come in to your office the same amount of time, but they can see a pharmacist every week or every two weeks or every three weeks, such that you give them a smaller pill load at any given time. Pill loads can be very effective in helping to motivate change because if you have an absolute limit to how many pills you will send out, then the dose that the patient gets per day is going to be a function of how many pills you're willing to send out. And if you have to give them weekly dispensing and they don't want to come that frequently to see the pharmacist, co-pays become problematic, they may be quite willing to lower their dose in order to have more freedom and more latitude. We're looking for opportunities to motivate change. 
And how do you assess stability? How many of you have had doctors who've been in retirement, they've picked up the phone and said, I know I hate to do this, but I've got this little old lady, she's absolutely a gem, never caused me a whit of trouble, would you take her over? And she turns out to be recus trainus. It's just the nightmare from hell. And you know almost as they're telling you, you should check your watch and your wallet and make sure everything's still there. (laughs) The harder they sell, the more likely the bill of goods they're selling you is not as advertised. That doesn't mean you don't do it, but a lot of times people are stable because no one's checked to see if they're unstable. Urine drug testing can be a very simple way of saying, you know what, I'm getting to know you. I don't want you to think of this as a police state, but here's where we are in our current thinking of standards of care. And if there's something you need to tell me before this sample is collected or before the results are discussed, I'd appreciate it now. Sometimes you can just say, what's going to be in the urine? And if you have a patient who says, well, how would I know? You've got to, understand, you've got to wonder where, where they drink and what they drink because everybody should know what's in their urine. I didn't mention this, and it's unfair. So if your phone goes off, it's a urine drug test, mandatory urine drug test. <laughs> And this is the important part. If it goes off twice, it's witnessed. (laughs) When we assess stability, remember that what a patient comes to you as a new patient, even if they're an apparently stable patient, you don't know them. How many of you have bought a car from someone that never gave them any trouble in their entire automotive history? And as soon as you're foot hits that gas pedal and that brake, everything starts breaking down. That's not that they sold you a crappy car. It's just you drive the car differently. Your expectations are different from that car. You may jackrabbit start off the line, and the little old lady just kind of coasts along. So the take-home message here is recognize that stability, uh, like addiction, is a diagnosis and an assessment made serially over time. People who are behaving aberrantly as a result of inadequate treatment of pain tends to be a retrospective diagnosis. Ask if they're willing to participate in non-medical pharmacotherapies. Things like exercise, Pilates, all of these things can be important and don't have to be formally covered by insurance. And the more you rely less on pharmacology and more on ancillary services, the optics become brighter for you. Let's be honest. It's like putting a Brinks home security sign on your lawn. It doesn't make you burglar proof, but it makes his house look better than mine. And that's sometimes what you want to do in your practice. Has a urine drug test ever been done? How many of you, oh, I I wouldn't need that in her, or I, I wouldn't need that in him. And then as soon as you ask for it, it becomes, oh, by the way, doc, I kissed my grandson last night. This is a true story of a 65-year-old woman I was treating. And she said, I I kissed my grandson last night and my lips went numb. And I said, are you trying to tell me you might be positive for cocaine? And she said, yes. And when I surprised her by telling her she wasn't going to get kicked out of our clinic because of using cocaine, she confided in me that her nickname in the 70s was Snow Princess and it (laughs) had nothing to do with downhill skiing. Now, can you become positive as a result of kissing your grandson? Yeah, but a really disgusting exchange of fluids are necessary, so let's not even go there. One of the things with my wife that I find very useful, she's a family doctor, 
And it's infinitely easier to know everything about something than it is to know enough about everything. And primary care is about knowing enough about everything to be safe. Look at the immutables. Don't look at the aberrant behavior as why it's happening. Focus on the aberrant behavior. If they're running out early and they say, but you're not giving me enough, that's fine, but you're running out early. I asked you for a urine drug screen. You promised me you'd get it. Somehow everybody has let you down, and I still don't have that damn screen. That's an immutable. Why it's happening is interesting and may take time to determine, but focus on the immutables. Don't focus on the nonsense as to why this somehow makes sense. Uh, I don't know about you, but if Elvis or aliens are involved in why the patient's positive for cocaine, highly unlikely to be true. And I've had some stories that have involved Elvis or aliens and then uh, rejoined her back saying, well, you can't prove it's not that way. I mean, how do you know that aliens don't use cocaine when they probe you rectally? This falls into the category of the craziest thinking makes perfect sense to the fool thinking it at the time. Howard talked a little bit about presumptive versus definitive testing. We often hear people say, well, a presumptive test has to be confirmed. It doesn't. If you have a test that's positive for cocaine and the patient says, I did a line of coke on the weekend, why spend two or $300 more to confirm it with definitive testing? You don't need to. You need to do definitive testing on contested results. And with the definitive test, you should put a condition on. And I've said to patients, look, I can deal with bad choices. And if you made a bad choice on the weekend, we can work with that. But BS is a hard one. And if you look me straight in the eye and tell me that I should go to the lab and do further testing at further expense, it's going to really damage our therapeutic relationship. People will reconsider. Frequency follow-up. If you're tapering and changing medications, don't give them three months and have them come back and tell you how it went. You need to have them back in a week or two so that they've had a chance to see if they understood what you meant. I changed a patient from immediate-release oxycodone to controlled-release oxycodone, physical therapist, bright lady, and despite the fact that we were going to higher and higher doses of the controlled release, she could not wake up in the morning stable. She was in clear withdrawal until finally I said, are you sure you're taking your medications three times a day? And she said, absolutely. And then it dawned on me, when do you take it? She said, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11 o'clock. That lady was not manipulating. She wasn't gaming me. To her, it only lasted that long. It didn't make any sense to not take it that frequently. And it was technically three times a day. So how do you assess pharmacologic instability? Poly. If poly is involved... There's a good chance you're on shaky ground. Polyopioids used to be fashionable a number of years ago. The reality is they're much more likely to be desperation pharmacotherapy with some exceptions. For example, a small dose of methadone in a patient who has significant tolerance. Uh, you know, a tertiary program might make sense out of that, but it's not the thing to be done in a primary care office. Polybenzos. I use uh, Restoril at night for bedtime, but I take Xanax all day. Not a good thing. And the trifecta, stimulants, benzos, and opioids. Be careful. And excessive pill loads. If, if a patient says, I want a lot of small tablets rather than a small number of large tablets, beware. It may be a sign of diversion. It may be a sign of a hand-mouth relationship where I hurt, therefore I take. It may be a lot of things, but it isn't a good thing. And when I've asked doctors, why are you prescribing 10 milligram tablets instead of 40 milligram tablets, giving essentially four times as much, the answer is I gave them smaller so I thought they would use less. It doesn't work that way. 
If you give a big bottle of pills, there's a good chance you're going to get into trouble. And so if you have a patient whose stability makes it difficult to logically continue on with a drug because they're running out early, test the hypothesis. Maybe give them more, but less of it at a time. And that's a very simple way of perturbing the system. If they're dealers, if they're selling it, and you don't give them three months, they'll go ballistic. They may tell you that there's a guy named Vinny out in the parking lot that's going to beat the crap out of them if he doesn't come out with a month or three months of medication. That's not your problem, but that is a fact. Running out early. It's not enough to look for people running out early. What's important is how much do you use under the worst-case scenario? And when you've got fewer than enough tablets, what do you do? Many people will go to bed early. They'll get up late. They'll try to shrink their day so they don't need to take as many pills. That predictably results in worsening of their pain, regardless of whether their pain is being well-served by opioids. Excessive sedation and somnolence. Sometimes a patient will say, I don't want you to talk to my wife, and yet the wife is the one who says, you know, if you fall asleep in the soup one more time, I'm not throwing you a life ring. I'm going to let you drown. Because there's more going on than the patient is communicating with you. Consider third-party resources for information. They also become known as next of kin in bad outcomes, and they're much less forgiving when they're under the role of next of kin. Diminishing rather than improving function. The hallmark of a substance use disorder in a pain patient is continued use despite harm. Decreased duration of action. The once daily dose that becomes BID, that becomes TID, then QID, and eventually it's I hurt, therefore I take. If you have a patient who is using a controlled release medication uh, four or five times a day, you should ask them when did they chew it the first time. Not have you ever chewed it. Just when did you chew it the first time? And you know what dose of the day is most commonly chewed? Morning. Because that's when they're behind the eight ball. That's when the dose they need, the serum level they need is here, and it's here. So they bring it up. And they get into a... They're draining... They're, they're, uh, they're circling the drain. And, and that is as much the drug abusing the patient as the patient abusing the drug. Keep that in mind. Opioid myths. If you don't need them, you come off them easily. I remember my nurse manager at the Wasser once saying, could you just send me one of those patients? And, and the doctor said, one what? One, one of the patients that came off the opioids easily. I'd just like to see one, because I've never, ever seen a patient come off of opioids easily. For the most part, it's nonsense. Physical dependence and accompanying withdrawal is a highly person-specific phenomenon with certain truths to be considered. As doses go up, and duration on the drug increases, withdrawal is normally more significant, but not always. So you can't use the absence of withdrawal as evidence that they were diverting the drug. It might be, but it very likely isn't. The ease with which the taper goes at the beginning will often play no role in how easy it is to taper and discontinue at the end. Any taper, and this is a critical point, any taper is a balance of tensions between sufficient time for a neuroadaptation to occur, meaning upregulation and downregulation of receptors, versus minimizing withdrawal symptoms. So if the amount of misery your patient suffers going 20% every week is the same as going 20% every month, then do it every week because you'll achieve your goals that much more quickly and the patient won't be subject to the extra lingering pain of withdrawal.
Should we taper the incumbent drug or the substitute or substitute and taper? We're going to talk about that in some of these cases. And there are factors to consider. How long the patient's been on the drug you want to taper? Have they had multiple unsuccessful attempts? If the patient goes into the taper knowing they're beaten before they even start, it doesn't turn out well. Does the patient feel, based on past history, that this is something they'll try, but they know really that they can't achieve it? Because the only thing different is you. Their previous doctor tried to taper. Their other doctors, they went into rehab for tapering and never worked. Now why is it going to work magically with you? Substitute and taper with a drug they haven't got experience with. And don't substitute an equivalent dose because you're not looking for equivalence, especially if the uh, incumbent drug is an excessively high dose because we already acknowledge that's not a good dose to be on. That's not what they need. That's what they tolerate. You need substantially less to offset withdrawal. A fraction, not just 25% reduction. You, you can go down a tenth of the dose in some cases when you go into an equivalence with a different molecule and work from that. Buprenorphine can do wonderful things when you're tapering and discontinuing uh, full agonists. If you have a patient with a very malignant relationship with the drug, and certain drugs have a more malignant relationship than others, Xanax, for example, Alprazolam, uh, is a particularly nasty one. Uh, um, the barbiturates, like um, uh, Fioranol, Fioracet, those are very difficult drugs. Uh, patients get drawn into those. Multiple unsanctioned dose increases, compromising the delivery system, they're chewing the morning dose, frequently running out of medications. Those tend to tell you that the patient already knows they can't control the drug. So should we taper or should we substitute and taper? That's what we're going to talk about with the cases. And Howard and I are going to uh, bring some cases up that hopefully are representative. If you can relate to them, put your hand up and and uh, ask a question. Uh, if you have any particular questions that we're not covering, you know, at us, we'll respond. And hopefully, uh, any questions related to what we talked about just in this little part? Yeah. You don't. But, why don't you repeat the question? Yeah. So the question is, um, in, in the traditional Data 2000 model, uh, Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000, which says, you know, for the first time since a long time ago, uh, American doctors can use a Schedule 3, 4, or 5 drug, and the only drug that qualifies is buprenorphine mono as Subutex or Suboxone as the, as the binary product, can treat opiate addiction in the office. In order to use that drug, the con conventional wisdom is to ask you to have the patient stop using the original agonist for a minimum of 24 hours until they're well-established in withdrawal. And if it's a drug like methadone, longer than that. And when they're in active withdrawal, the buprenorphine will offset that withdrawal and reverse it. Unfortunately, if you give buprenorphine to a full agonist-dependent individual, you can actually precipitate withdrawal. And that's where that thinking comes from. However, it seems to be a dose and onset related phenomenon. So what we would do is we would put a transdermal patch on of butrans, of transdermal buprenorphine, while they're still taking the full agonist. We'd incur an opioid debt, so drop it 25% or 30%, and then the patch will gradually onset and correct that opioid debt 
making it much easier to exit from the full agonist because you haven't precipitated withdrawal. It's something that I'm kind of covering fairly quickly. If you are interested and you do do buprenorphine, I'm happy to talk with you about it. Um, but it is a very elegant drug in terms of exiting and correcting uh, opioid dependency. I was really hoping you'd wait a little while till we bonded before, <laughs> before you went down that road. Sorry? Oh, well, we, then we've all, you bond very well, don't you? <laughs> only, is, only better is Colorado. They bond really well there, too. Um, this has been talked about in so many different forums. Uh, we did a, a session called the Medical Stasi. I was the one under the bright lights, uh, if, if any of you were there. And the question about what are the legal implications of using THC in your practice um, or allowing it relate to the prescription of controlled substances. And depending on what state you're in, depends on what your liability is. But here's one thing I would suggest to you. There is a difference medically between cannabis and cannabinoids. I give a talk, uh, Cannabis versus Cannabinoids, the Politics of Medical Marijuana. There is no one in the right mind, going, in my opinion, who is going to write a prescription that says smoke three joints up to five times a day um, and be careful. There's no dose. There's no indication, no contraindication, um, no uh, purity of sample. The, the concentration of, of THC could anywhere be 2% up to 45%. Cannabidiol varies as well. And yet the molecule, the cannabinoid molecules, play an important role and will play an increasing role with drugs like Sativex, which we've had in Canada for a number of years, cannabis sativa extract. And more recently, they've brought out a, a straight cannabidiol, which um, this is GW Pharma, that's going to be approved for use in, in the United States fairly shortly, probably before the, uh, the uh, dual product, THC and cannabidiol. So don't conflate those two together. It, it comes down to what risk you're dealing with and how a regulator in your community might view your documentation and acceptance of that risk. There's no right or wrong answer, I don't think, unless you seek professional legal counsel. And even then, they're going to give you a legal answer. They're not going to necessarily give you the answer that relates clinically. I know that sounded weaselly, but we don't know each other that well. So afterwards, we can talk, perhaps. Any other questions? Yeah? I, I'm sorry. I can't read your lips from this far, and I can't hear you. So the, so the question is, can, can we talk a little bit about the difference between um, long and short-acting opioids in terms of withdrawal? And, and you can actually generalize that to long, short, and intermediate benzodiazepines. And, and as a general rule, the shorter the duration of action of the drug, the more intense is the withdrawal, but the shorter is the withdrawal period. Now, having said that, methadone can vary from... Uh, moderate to severe withdrawal, and it has both an acute and a post-acute withdrawal phase, and so it can be it can last for months. 
On the other hand, buprenorphine is often said to be a drug with a mild flu-like syndrome associated with withdrawal. And I've had patients who have come to me and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I, you know, I stopped on Friday. I was fine. Others have said, which part of the English language were you thinking of when you said mild and flu-like? Because in their experience, that was World War III, no survivors. So withdrawal is highly personal. But there are certain things you can think of in general. There are ways of mitigating opiate withdrawal with either opiate drugs. In the U.S., the only drug that would be allowed to do that if you're, if you're dealing with detox is buprenorphine. Uh, if you're dealing with withdrawal associated with taper, you can use another opioid legally as long as you, do Howard, as long as you document carefully. Yes. There's nothing unlawful. And you can use buprenorphine off-label as Suboxone or Subutex, according to a paper that, um, that Howard and uh, Ed Covington and Patricia Good wrote called Dear DEA. And it asked for Let the Let me DEA be clear on that. Yes, you could prescribe the people who have the waiver have two BND numbers. It's generally the same number, and the second one is the same number with an X in front of it. But if you're using buprenorphine or Subutex, Suboxone for pain, you do not need that waiver. But you must document in the chart that you're using it off-label for pain, not for the disease of addiction. Now, the caveat to that is if you claim it's for the treatment of pain and not addiction, and every one of your colleagues, your reasonable peer group, would interpret this as being clearly an indication where you're using it for the treatment of addiction. The fact that you documented your thinking uh, will not necessarily hold up in a DEA investigation. It has to be a reasonable um, argument that you're doing this primarily to treat pain as opposed to treat opiate addiction. So, for example, if a person was injecting themselves with the painkiller, uh, most people would see that as being taking an oral medication and injecting it, that's pretty prima facie evidence of a substance use disorder, and that would be something that you'd probably be better to refer to a maintenance program like methadone or buprenorphine. Look, the key is that you want who, someone who reads your chart and reads your medical record comes to the same conclusion that you would come to. That is the key. And, if you, and I say document, 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 because if you don't document, it's a figment <coughs> of your imagination. Like I was asked multiple times, I'm sure Doug was too, I can't document that the patient was chewing Oxycontin. I can't document. You absolutely do document that. Absolutely. The key is what you do with that information. The absolute worst answer or worst thing you could do is to ignore it. Yeah, there's, there's generally a lot of different things you can do that are defensible, that are rational, and, and some are even compassionate. But the one absolutely wrong thing to do in the context of aberrant behavior is to just duck your head down and say, I hope it never happens again. <coughs> Excuse me. So let, let's go um, and start with case one. Okay, Howard? In this case, I'm going to present very brief histories just to get <coughs> us into the ballpark of what we're going to discuss. And if we get through all three cases, then it'll be, I don't think we will, but we'll try. So the first case is the patient initiates the request to get off the medicine. A 43-year-old male with diabetic neuropathy on controlled release oxycodone, 120 milligrams twice daily, is considering an opioid taper after a successful trial of gabapentin. In the past, attempts to discontinue oxycodone has met with significant increases in pain and generally frank withdrawal symptoms. So 
How would you advise your patient? Is, is this patient on an unacceptably high dose of opioid? By what criteria are you using that that is exceptionally high? CDC guidelines. So do you all know how to calculate? Oh, thank you. You sense that uh, airway problem, anesthesia. I have a sense. I need an epidural, too. Um, so, yeah, the CDC guidelines would clearly say that 120 milligrams twice a day, 240, is excessive. So one of the things somebody might say is, well, you know, enjoy the relief. You're on a static dose of opioid, why rock the boat? And the reason to rock the boat in this case is clearly because if you don't rock the boat, when a bad outcome occurs, someone's going to say you knew or you ought to have known that you were in a perilous area and you really had no reason. You had no evidence that you had to be there because you had no evidence of a failed trial. Um, so that's important. Let me just interrupt. Doug said something very important. What you know and what you ought to know and that's a very legal term. So there's some things that you know, and there's some things that you should know. And if you don't, then you can get into trouble. So one of the things you could do is you could taper this down to be more in keeping with the morphine equivalents uh, as directed by the CDC. Um, and, and that would be something you might consider. But what might argue that you could actually potentially get out of Dodge here and, and do away with opioids altogether? This is a neuropathic pain where gabapentinoids have been introduced and there's been a marked improvement. So an interesting thing about endpoints is if you have a patient who, say, gets into Vicodin for managing peripheral neuropathy and then someone throws a tricyclic or a gabapentinoid at them and, and they say, well, this is more rational and they expect success to be measured by reduction of, gabapent of um, Vicodin or oxycodone, that might work if it's two to three Vicodin a day. But if they're taking 10 or 15 Vicodin a day, you have to really respect that as two different problems. And at this point, we don't know if he's on 240, 240 milligrams of oxycodone uh, because he has a concurrent substance-related problem or simply because he gradually increased and now that the right drug has been added, he's, he's now sitting way up here. Tapered to discontinue the opioid class of drugs, and it's certainly possible, and, and it would be possible to consider using buprenorphine, uh, if not all the way through, using it at the begin, uh, at using uh, simple taper at the beginning, and when you get down within striking range, it's hard to taper controlled release drugs because they don't give you an ability to fractionate very well, and so that's somewhere where putting a transdermal buprenorphine patch on uh, might be effective if if he was covered for that or if he could afford it. So how do you calculate the morphine milligram equivalence? And remember, this isn't a therapeutic equivalence. It in no way says that oxycodone and hydromorphone somehow have an equivalence, except to say they can be related somehow to a line in the sand where morphine's line is drawn. That's really what we're looking at. So there are charts online. You can try to remember it, but personally, as I get older, my memory is not as good as it used to be. So find a chart that you use, use it regularly, and you essentially take the total dose of the current opioid or opioids and multiply it by the equivalency factor or factors. That gets us back into the polyopioid concept. So here he's on 240 milligrams of oxycodone. The equivalence is 1.5 to 2 
for morphine to oxycodone, and that gives you basically a 360 to 400 milligram morphine equivalents per day, which is well above the CDC guidelines. And you will find that, uh, that there may be a lot of fear associated with changing that number. And one of the things you have to ask yourself is, can you motivate the patient through that fear? Um, trust me, I'm a doctor, will not help very much at all. They, most people know that withdrawal is not going to hurt you as much as it's going to hurt them. <laughs> and, and they really need reassurance there that you'll be with them and that you will try to help them remember as much as the alligators are nipping at your heels, we're draining a swamp here. And, and that's sometimes what has to happen. The clinician has to say, I know it's uncomfortable, but you said you were going to drop today. Let's drop and see where we go. So it's important to explore previous attempts because you know, one of the interesting things about babies that are born to mums who are chronic opioid users, whether street or, or medical, um, they withdraw completely differently than adults do. And the reason they do is because in a baby, there is no psychosocial overlay that, um, that taints the experience. They basically withdraw pharmacologically. It's a very precise and, and fairly simple to manage uh, problem. On the other hand, Every time you withdraw from opioids as an adult or any medication, you build on the experience that previously went before you. So if you had a bad experience before, it's unlikely this experience is going to be very good. Um, who initiated the taper? Was it the patient? Was it the MD? Or is it a combination of both? And ultimately, why do you currently want to initiate a taper? So the, the greatest success comes where the patient is driving the the car. When the patient says, you know what, I've been on this a while, I'm feeling so much better, I honestly don't like the way I feel all the time with opioids and I've had some bad experiences, I'd like to get off of them. But remember that key point in the middle here, which is pain amplification will occur if withdrawal is present. And withdrawal is not always rear end and mouth fighting for custody of the toilet. There's a, an early or what we refer to as a subjective withdrawal pattern, and then there's a late objective pattern. The late objective pattern is nausea, vomiting, arthralgia, myalgia, and so on. Early is dysphoria, and in cases of pain patients, amplification of pain. So this is one of the traps that many of your patients are going to fall into to say, I know it's not great, but when I run out of pills on Friday, my pain does go to 20 out of 10 on Saturday. And then on Monday, it drops back down to nine and three quarters out of 10. Nine and three quarters isn't a win, but the patient is going to see that as evidence that this is something positive because it got worse when I didn't take it. It's really only evidence of withdrawal. A lower dose may be a win, but my challenge with a lower dose is they almost always have been on lower doses. And so in most of your practices, you're going to find a wrestling match between going up and going down and that can be very frustrating. Sometimes the right answer is to just get rid of the opioid class of drug altogether. So, Howard, you've done more than a few tapers. Well, there's many ways to do it as far as tapering. The key is get a regimen that you're comfortable doing. And remember that you're, when you're tapering, you're not reducing the dose in proportion to analgesia. You're doing a tapered dose for neuroadaptation over a period of a period, depending upon the drug that you're using, over a number of days or it could be weeks. So the general rules for tapering in a patient who's on board, who initiated the result, initiated this, like this case, 
is drop about 10 to 20 percent each one to two weeks until the bottom third of the taper is reached. Now, when you do a taper, think of baseball. Person is on home, at home plate. Getting to home plate and third base is generally very easy with a taper. Getting from third base to home, that's where the problem usually occurs. And that's where you have to be very vigilant with your, with your patient. Then drop the, the dose at 5 to 10% every two to four weeks. But have a schedule that you're continued, that you're very constant with, and hopefully firm with. These are available online, by the way, so if any of you are wondering where they came from or where they are, they should be part of your mobile package. Now, one of the things, this doesn't specify the drug, and the interesting thing is uh, neuroadaptation, whether it's benzos, opioids, or otherwise, gabapentinoids, uh, which are very much like, op uh, like benzos when you uh, come time to withdraw from them, works on this principle of drop a reasonable amount at the beginning when you can sort of take advantage of the excess, drop smaller amounts at the bottom, and give a little bit longer time to neuroadapt. But recognize that for some people, they, they may report moderate withdrawal, and you're not going to ever be able to make it better. You might be able to mitigate it with an alpha-2 agonist. We'll talk a little bit about that. Like uh, clonidine or lefexidine is coming to the United States uh, with the primary indication for opiate withdrawal, non-opioid uh, pharmacologic management of opiate withdrawal. But the reality is this will hold you in pretty good steads for gabapentinoids, uh, pregabalin, uh, any, of, any of the molecules that you might struggle with. When you're reducing um, withdrawal symptoms, it's helpful to tell the patient that. Uh, again, expectation management is a really important part of exit strategies, and it should have been an important part of uh, the initial trial of opioid therapy because a lot of patients will finally tell you if you ask that their goal is pain-free. And there's only two times in life when you're truly pain-free, and that's anesthesia general and uh, death. Short of that, you know, pain is a compensatory mechanism that's protective, and we can't eliminate pain without the body responding in an adverse fashion to it. So emotional, symptomatic, expectation management plays a real big role in whether you're going to succeed in doing this or not. But while constant evaluation is important, it's also important to encourage um, distraction uh, approaches. So going to the pool, hydrotherapy, Pilates, Tai Chi, all of these things can play an important role in preventing the patient from lying on the couch just experiencing every miserable moment of the last dose reduction. I call that environmental acupuncture. So we want to in incur an acceptable opioid debt. And an opioid debt just conceptually is if I'm a, on, a, on a 100 milligram equivalents of morphine per diem every day for the past six years and I break my ankle, unless I get that 100 milligram equivalents of morphine per day, I'm going to have a debt that is expected to be paid by any opioid that comes along. So when the emergency room doctor throws in some immediate release morphine, until it reaches that 100 milligrams, there's going to be a debt between what's given versus what's needed. And so you can use that when you're using opiate withdrawal or benzo withdrawal. You incur a, a benzo debt or an opioid debt by lowering the dose somewhat. And that debt then can be corrected with the 
the drug you're going to substitute with, if you're going to substitute and taper, or it just becomes a debt that neuroadaptation is going to correct. Yeah? There's something that we do very commonly, and it's more relevant in this, this conference. When we're talking about benzodiazepines are very similar to amitriptyline, and sleep is very important for decreasing pain. If you have good sleep, you have to decrease pain, so you may want to use doxepin. If you have a person on a certain amount of an opiate, and now you're adding a different type of agent in order to deal with their pain, how does that affect how you can then taper that dose on that visit because you've added a different agent? Well, that that would be so. The question is, if you're if you're taking a, a, a substitution taper approach. Um, what's called an Edmonton protocol, or an Edinburgh protocol, is basically you, you incur a debt of about a third of the total dose in the first opioid. Over the course of a week, you drop to, to two-thirds, then to one-third, and then off as you bring in the new drug. And so it's important to document that the reason you're prescribing two opioids, two different opioids... Not opioids. It, 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 it doesn't matter. It, whatever you're doing, you have an incumbent and you have a novel. The, the, the new one becomes the drug that is taking over the responsibility of the previous one. Um, I'd have some trouble comparing um, tricyclics with benzos. Uh, and, and doxepin um, is a pretty potent cardiotoxic drug. A, a better drug for sleep is mirtazapin, uh, Remeron. And interestingly, while sedation increases as dose goes up, sleep improvement increases as dose goes down. So a 15 to 30 milligram dose of Remeron will lay most of us out on our backside, but we won't sleep. On the other hand, a 7.5 milligram Remeron dose will induce normalized sleep architecture more efficiently than 15 will, than 30 will. So it's a bit paradoxical. Um, it's like the joke about the pilot whose engi four, four engines are, are failing. When the first one in it, uh, fails, he's going to be half an hour late. When the second one fails, he's going to be an hour late. And someone says, if the last engine fails, we'll be up here all day. It, it's kind of like that sort of paradox. And you have to really explain it to the patient as to why you're suggesting that a smaller dose is, in fact, better. But when you do, you have to have a strategy for incurring a debt and then correct that debt. I mean, the alternative is you just yank the rug out. And that um, can be done with non-opioid or non-benzo pharmacologic support, or it can simply be done with white knuckles. Uh, but I can tell you, white knuckles and cold turkey don't work very well, and the liability of overdose and death in an individual who is frankly in opiate withdrawal is about 400% greater than a person who's shooting heroin on the street. I mean, it's, it's a, when you're in opiate withdrawal and you, you self-medicate, your risk of dying is, is fairly significant. So you need a plan, and you need to execute that plan and document how you're executing it. And typically it's divided up into thirds, and whether you do every two or three days or whether you do it every week, you drop a third initially, that's the debt, and then you introduce the, the novel drug, the new one, that's going to correct that debt. You do that for two or three days or a week, then you drop another third, and you increase the novel. And eventually, you're on the novel drug, and you're off the incumbent completely. Yeah? So what's the death rate of tapering? It depends on the population. IV shooters that have looked at uh, using Narca uh, naltrexone 
rather than maintenance in IV drug users, with the exception of the Israeli army, when they did a study in the Israeli army where they had a highly structured commitment to taking that drug and monitoring of naltrexone. When you fall off the naltrexone wagon, you're hypersensitized, and the risk of overdose death is very, very high. That's why maintenance is so much better than, than um, naltrexone therapy. We're not, you know, we're, we, we're probably going to finish the last one, the, the first case here. The other cases are in. Howard and I are around. Um, we don't want to hold you up during your day. We'll, we'll still be here as long as you want for, yes? Before you can get her off of which? Well, if you read case two, which I think is benzos and opioids, and the question is, do I start with benzos, do I start with opioids, or do I deal with both at the same time? If the wheels fall off and your patient ends up in the intensive care, you can deal with everything simultaneously. And, and that's probably the only place where, um, in the absence of an, an absolute contraindication to a drug, you should probably you know, fix one ball. Juggling with three or four balls in the air at the, t at the same time is not always elegant. But if you hold certain things constant and then you address one at a time, you can put a, a plan in place. For most people, benzodiazepine withdrawal is more difficult than opiate withdrawal. And so that might be the one that you hold constant and deal with the opioids. But keep in mind that risk associated with sleep apnea, both central and, uh, and obstructive, dramatically increases when you add sedatives to opioids. And just being on opioids... Uh, sleep apnea may be as high as 50% of those who are, who are on opioids, whether they have a body habitus of obstruction uh, versus central sleep apnea that normalize, typically normalizes when you get off of the opioid class of drug. So you, you may want to, in that particular case, before you start the opioids, is do a, a, a substitution of if they're on a short-acting, like a Xanax product or an Ativan product, and, and rotate them to clorazepam and then start your opioid reduction and keep that stable. If you have 100 heroin addicts and 100 people who are abusing only benzos, and you ask them, I can only help you with one drug. Which one do you want me to help you with? They'll say, I'll deal with the withdrawal from opioids. Help me with the benzos. The benzos are the toughest withdrawal. Yeah. And, and they're also the one that can create the greatest challenge for you in your office because unlike opioids where, for the most part, Somebody gives you a funny song and dance about why they need yet again a, another early refill and you say no, uh, it's unlikely they're going to go out and die as a result of that. However, if you've been prescribing benzos to them and they run out yet again and today you bring the hammer down and say I'm not going to refill it and they go out and have a grand mal seizure in your parking lot, you're on the hook and you're on the hook severely because you did know or you should have known that abruptly stopping benzodiazepines can lead to uh, severe seizures. So the challenge is how do you do it differently so that you're not continuously essentially out of control or escalating with, with a particular drug. And one way to do that is to identify the problem, stabilize it, and refer. Consider it as the golden moment. And so when the patient comes in and says, I just need this refilled one more time, I'll promise to be careful. Just smile and say, you were careful every other time. I'm not going to ask you to do something you couldn't do before. But what I am going to do is I'm going to give you a drug in an amount that's sufficient to eliminate the risk of seizures because that's what we're really worried about. 
and I'm going to give you one or two days of it. So you don't have any problems with getting ahead of yourself and running out. And I'm going to refer you on. And if the patient says, thank you, you've got to win. If they say, you're only going to give me this, I'll just go out and buy more. Smile and say, thank you. I was so close to writing you a script. Now I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you knowledge. And that knowledge is, don't stop abruptly. If Vinny can't come through, go to the emergency room because you are at risk of seizures and have a nice day. Because... I'm not really playing the role of a doctor here. I'm playing a role of a supplier. And until you told me you were just going to go out and buy more, I actually felt legally obligated to provide you with more. But I'm not going to have to do that now. What we could do, um, if anybody has to leave, just leave. There's nobody coming into this room after, you know, for an hour or so. Not that we're going to take it. But let's, if anybody wants, we could go Talk through. Talk about the, cases? We or? go through the cases two and three very rapidly, and whoever wants to stay, stay. Whoever has another, you know, keep on going. For case one, would you... Um... Wait. Wait. Sorry. Yeah. You'll be number two. Yeah, go go ahead. ahead. For case one, would it be reasonable to um, give him the 30 milligram extended release and have him go down? Absolutely. That's, that's what... That's what the punchline is with controlled release drugs. The question is, would it be reasonable to, to reduce the strength of the controlled release drug? And it would be. That would create um, a perfect opioid debt. Uh, the next thing you do is you choose which of the three, typically two or three doses in the day you reduce. And you reduce the daytime doses, not the bedtime dose, because bedtime is when um, often there's going to be problems with sleep. Interestingly, with oxycodone, Many of your patients with oxycodone are going to have something called brain race. And brain race is this exhaustion you get when you put your head on the pillow, but you can't shut your brain off. And it's non-restorative. It's just a terrible thing. It's fairly unique to um, oxycodone. And in some cases, the only way to deal with it is actually to, to make the reductions at the bedtime rather than during the day. The idea of reducing during the day is they can distract themselves more effectively with the mid dose. Um, so we would normally take the mid-dose, the morning dose, and the evening dose. Morning is when you're behind the eight ball, so you, you want to be a little bit cautious, but take the middle-day dose and reduce it first. And then as you get further and further, if they're on a TID dose, make it BID, and then consider um, just sequentially dropping uh, one or, or both of those at a time. And typically give about three or four days to a week. Controlled release, though, are a little bit tricky because they exist a little bit longer, depending on how they're being absorbed, than an immediate release drug would do. So the question is, can you change to IR when you get small? Yes, you can, but be care- it's perilous because as soon as you introduce IR um, and you've got a patient then who says, well, boy, since you've give- given me this, my, pa- my pain is so much, much better, what are you going to do about that? And every time you add something, you run the risk of, of having to deal with getting out of it. Well, Howard's got a acute story about a very well-respected scientist whose name would, of course, not be mentioned here, but was using a drug with uh, spansial morphine in it. And how did he do it, Howard? He, he put it on applesauce. He took the... 
But he, he counted little, little... He counted. He was very good. He was a superb physician, a nationally known physician. And he would take the capsules, open them, and he'd actually count the little beads, the little tiny beads. Drove me crazy. And he would then reduce it. And he did very well, but it took him a while. But he was meticulous in what he did, absolutely meticulous. But, but, and that is an individual with discipline and control. And a sense, in my mind, tells us how poor we are at, at treating ourselves. Because that could have gone south in so many different ways. I had a, a woman who was kind of in a similar situation uh, with um, a doctor who was very compassionate but wasn't very pharmacologically skilled. And he would leave it to her to make the determinations as to whether or not she should uh, reduce the benzodiazepine dose. And she'd been on it for four or five years. And she had a failed marriage. She had a birth of a child she couldn't remember. I mean, it was just not a good deal. And I was asked to take over the case, and I suggested uh, the amount to drop. And she said, well, Dr. So-and-so always let me do that. <coughs> and I said, well, it seems like you're going through an awful lot of work. You know, I mean, I'm here. I get paid. You know, tell me how you're feeling, and I'll, I'll give you my best estimation. Well, she initially rebelled against that. But in the end, that's how she actually got off. And when she did finally get off, she was awfully grateful. So there are lots of different ways of skinning the cat. But I think the challenge that you have to pay attention to is um, when you substitute, there's going to be a problem monitoring. If you're doing urine drug toxicology, there becomes a problem monitoring because each analyte you legitimize in the urine, you've lost the ability to monitor overuse of that drug. Um, and you can't, by urine drug testing, um, denote the milligrams that they're taking. That has been proposed by certain diagnostic companies, but that's in Yiddish called the Bubemeister. It doesn't work. Also, it'd be interesting to ask your patients about oxycodone products, no matter what they are. It'd be very interesting to ask them, has your sleep changed? And two, do you occasionally get nightmares which you never got before? And you'll find that also with oxycodone. I mean, whoever, whoever named... Percocet, Percocet, popped a few before going to marketing because you shouldn't be thinking energy. <laughs> and yet for pharmacists who get into trouble with Percocet, the most uh, treacherous time of the day, <clears throat> excuse me, is about uh, 6 to 7 when they're, they're sort of running on empty, they're facing the evening uh, onslaught. <clears throat> excuse me, and Percocet's um, a very difficult drug to get to deal with. So did you want to look at, um, at case two, where it's a little bit more complicated? Um, there's a lot of information here that you can go through, I think, fairly simply uh, about substitution and taper and some of the, non some of the pharmacologic but non-opioid options in dealing with opioid withdrawal. But, but one, one point that I think, you know, if you, if you keep this in mind, when you are substituting a drug you're not looking for an analgesic, in the case of opioids, equivalency. If you're on a high dose of opioid and you acknowledge that that dose of opioid is less than optimum, you don't want a, th a therapeutic equivalence to what you already acknowledged is a ridiculous dose. It, it can get into some really treacherous grounds when you look at a conversion table. What you really want to do is have the minimum amount of drug that will offset withdrawal. Now, sometimes the patient will say, well, this isn't going to give me very good pain relief. And what you have to s establish from the outset is, you're, 
What's that? That's not the object. The object at that point is not analgesia. The object is going from problematic opioid to an optimum opioid. And you want it as low as possible because that's where you're essentially making your greatest strides in going from here to here over as short a period of time as possible versus here to here. I had a case a few, a few years ago where a woman was being treated by another doctor. She was on morphine and, and Xanax. And she was on 24 milligrams of Xanax a day. We call that Xanax SL in Canada, which is not sublingual. It's shitload. And, and this, this lady was told by her neurologist, look, I, I'm really uncomfortable putting on methadone. The, the plan was to convert her to methadone while you're on, on this uh, sedative. And she, she said, well, I'll go home and I'll, I'll taper it. I'll, I'll be okay. And, and she did. And she came back to start methadone. She was on 0.25 milligrams, and that was one month later. She was on 0.25 from, 20, from 24. And um, the neurologist was ecstatic. She said, as the methadone was started, I'm on such a kind of a whiff. Would it be all right if I just stopped the Xanax? And he said, yeah, that's great. So he started around 20 milligrams. And, then, and we would go once a day until we established an opioid tolerance and then split up into three times daily uh, for safety reasons. But on the second day, she was on 40. On the third day, she was on 60 milligrams of methadone. You know what's happening next. Not so good. So she came in, and he wasn't in the, in the clinic, and I had my, it was like quarter to four, my train, I was going to miss my train, I was just not a happy camper, until I talked with her for a couple of minutes, and a smile came across my face, and she said, why are you smiling? I said, because you're going to feel great, and I'm going to make my train. And what it was, was the sedative action, the sedative side effect of methadone was offsetting the benzodiazepine withdrawal that she was in. She wasn't in morphine withdrawal, which he thought he was treating by increasing the dose. He was actually cross-reacting with the sedative quality of methadone to offset the benzo deficiency. I put her on a whiff of clonopin, and she was fine. And I also backed her methadone down severely. Now, two things about that. If she was going to seize as a result of benzo deficiency, the methadone would have done nothing for her. I mean, but worse, the sedative effect of, benz, of, uh, of methadone would have eventually killed her. You kill with, any of you use methadone here? There are three ways you kill with methadone. And first of all, remember, methadone has no sense of humor. Three ways, is it dose is too high? No, well, the, the, the initial dose is in excess. And the, the number 30 is commonly thought of as the safe dose for any adult to take that, that is unlikely to cause them death. So single overdose. Second one is you titrate up it too quickly. So this is accumulated toxicity. Today's dose doesn't get you. Tomorrow's dose doesn't get you. All the third, half the second, and a quarter of the first, assuming a half-life of 24 hours. And that's a very common way, and that was what was happening with this lady, accumulated toxicity. And the third one, which is the most treacherous. Drug-drug interaction. Drug-drug interaction. And the easy ones to see are have opiate, have benzos, chakabatsi. You, you overdose and die because of a synergistic effect of the two. But the other way that can happen is, let's say you have a patient who's on carbamazepine, and you titrate them onto methadone for the treatment of neuropathic pain, and they're in a three times daily dose, and they're stable. And the psychiatrist who has been prescribing the 
carbamazepine for mood regulation changes the patient to Neurontin. Three to five days later, the patient died. Do you know why? Yeah, the, the carbamazepine is a potent 3A4 inducer, so the Tegretol was actually suppressing the serum level of the methadone, and when the inducer was removed and substituted with a neutral drug through 3A4, Gab, uh, um, Neurontin, uh, what happened was the 3A4 activity started to fall off and the same amount of drug was going in and they die of a fatal overdose. And the hard part about that is they're temporally displaced, meaning what you did didn't immediately cause a bad outcome. It, de- it caused a delayed outcome. And they're very hard to see if you don't know to look for them. Most often they're seen in coroner's inquests. And that's a heck of a time to find out. Yeah. Well, I read that methadone interacts in that way with up to 900 other medications. Do you, do you have a, a ranking, the top 10, the top 20, the top 50 that you look out for in terms of changes in metabolism of methadone? Uh, uh, well, here's a slightly different way to look at it. As a general rule, induced pathways are always clinically relevant. Inhibited pathways may or may not be clinically relevant. So, for example, uh, classic uh, interaction is a methadone patient with a psychiatric medication like fluvoxamine, Luvox. Luvox is a a potent uh, 3A4 inhibitor. So if you have a patient who is well outside of the initial lethality window of methadone, which is the first two weeks, so they've now established a safe and healthy tolerance to methadone, and you introduce fluvoxamine, because the psychiatrist thought this was a great idea, it's not likely going to cause a problem because what will happen is the inhibition of 3A4 will just very slowly result in a titration upwards, as it were, during a period of time where titration is relatively benign. It's the first seven to 10 days where you have to be very careful about going slow, starting low and going slow. Once you've established a basal level of methadone, it's actually fairly hard to kill a person with an opioid. But it can cause a problem if the fluvoxamine is discontinued, but it tends again to be a more gentle lowering of the dose or increasing of the dose. Contrast that with um, dilantin, phenytoin, abarbiturate, uh, any number of other potent 3A4 inducers. As soon as you introduce that, within a matter of a day, you're going to get a precipitous drop um, in serum levels. And remember, withdrawal is generally not related to level, it's related to rate of change of level. So in methadone maintenance, you can go from here to here over 24 hours, where here is 100 and here is 50. That would be a 24-hour 50% reduction, a half-life of of 24 hours, with relative ease. But if you went from here, 100 to 90, and you did it in about a minute and a half because of an injection of Narcan, all hell will break loose. So it's not so much levels, it's rates of change of levels. And that's why with methadone, yeah, lots of interactions are, are relatively benign. And because we titrate to effect, as long as we understand which directions they're going, we can usually be fairly, we can be fairly safe. But unlike methadone, which has no sense of humor, buprenorphine can take a joke. And buprenorphine is also 3A4 active, and so it would interact with many of these other drugs as well. It's just not generally clinically significant. doesn't cause you that much trouble.
stalled the stalled taper. Well, the stalled taper is uh, is the phenomenon where your best efforts and the patient's best intent results in today's dose and yesterday's dose and tomorrow's dose essentially being the same. And sometimes that stalled taper will be at a lower dose, and you'll think, okay, I'm, I haven't hit it out of the park, but I'm better than I was. But again, the problem with many patients that, that, are in the, that we find in these situations, you can get them down, but then they sort of come back up. And then you get them down again, they come back up. And the challenge is there is this roller coaster. Um, it's like the patient who says, I'm happy to try anything, but if it doesn't work, can I go back on Demerol? And you cajole them and you encourage them and they press and, and eventually the right, you say no. And when the patient says, but if it doesn't work, why can't I go back on Demerol? And the answer is, if Demerol is a problem today, it's a problem tomorrow, certainly going to be a problem next week. So I'm not going to ask you to go through that twice. So the important thing is, uh, in terms of reducing the risk of a taper, stall, is to burn bridges. So you can't go back. You know, I think Cortez did that with the ship. He, he burned everything and um, increases commitment to the new land. And, and that's really what we're looking for. You know, one of the things I've said over the years is in the absence of knowing what to do, knowing what not to do is a very close second. And, and this has been reported to be an ancient Canadian proverb. It's only a proverb if it says A after it. <laughs> e, take off, eh? Yeah. So uh, if you don't know what to do, that's okay. But if you really know you shouldn't do something, don't do it. Because, you know, you're going to face somebody like me or Howard, and, and what was good about what you did? And it's, I just didn't know what else to do. Okay, that's all right. But why would you do what you knew hadn't worked ever before? And, and why are you asking the patient to somehow have a different outcome as a result? So the stalled tapers can be malignant. They can be sometimes because you expect that if you go slowly enough, you can eliminate withdrawal. You can't. You can't in all situations. And sometimes what you have to do, that lady who was perpetually trapped in benzo land um, eventually just needed to get angry at me enough that she did what I said to prove me wrong, and it started to work. And then, you know, within a matter of a month or two, she was off. And... Um, the interesting thing about benzos or sedative withdrawal in general, the most intense period is the first month. And between one month and three months, there's dramatic improvement in terms of sense of well-being. Instead of seeing the toes of their shoes, they start looking upwards. They engage in the newspaper and things like that. Between three months and six months, they notice dramatic differences. Between six and nine, much more subtle. And even between nine months and a year, Family and friends are noticing differences, even though the patient won't notice any difference. But there's a nasty thing called post-acute withdrawal. And post-acute withdrawal basically says, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay, I go to the market, I went for one thing, I came back with five, and I, it's not one of the things I left for. And there's absolute terror, and the natural fear is I've screwed my brain up and I'll, I'll never be normal again. It's a phenomenon that sadly, when you reach into your pocket, your house coat, and you find that one Xanax, and you take it, all the post-acute withdrawal goes away. It's a trap. What happens with post-acute withdrawal is intensity diminishes, uh, interval between episodes increases, and they eventually um, get through it and out the other side. But a drug that's very helpful in substitution for benzo withdrawal is gabapentin. 
And the sad thing is, a really difficult drug for some people to get off of is gabapentin. And it makes perfect sense because if it's useful at withdrawal from benzos, I mean, anything that's useful for withdrawal at benzos has got to have its own baggage, and it does. I've had more than a few professionals who get onto gabapentin, and, I mean, they're losing everything as a result of it. Uh, this lady, I know this. So what, what you really mean is what's the dose that if they're on and they don't get it? Yeah, but, but, but the way you frame, framed that was you said, what is the dose of benzos that causes seizures? You mean, what's the dose if they're on it regularly and stop abruptly that causes seizures? Because benzos don't cause seizures. Oh, absolutely, but that, that's the other. There, there isn't any magic number. Uh, for example, if you have a patient who has a, an eating disorder, um, their uh, uh, predilections towards seizures is going to be much, uh, much lower or they're going to have a much higher uh, incidence of seizures because of the electrolyte imbalances that occur. If they've had a previous history of seizures, you know that if you're dealing with alcohol withdrawal, one of the um, absolute concerns they have to keep in mind is a previous history of DTs or seizures. So if they've had them, then everything you do from this point on has to respect the fact that they will seize at lower doses with, few, with less of an insult. The danger here is that you think there is a magic number, and I don't mean for you, but there is no magic number. It, it has to do with what else is going on in that person's life, and, and that's why all that you do has to be predicated with, however, if you feel genuinely unwell, go to the local emergency room because it's correctable. Don't wait until the wheels fall off. Xanax is a particularly nasty drug for seizures. Not usually fatal seizures, but nasty seizures. Alcohol is a particularly good drug for fatal seizures. Barbiturates, fatal seizures. So um, what you do with benzos can be a little bit more forgiving than what you would do with uh, um, a drug like barbs, like phenobarbital, or is what we commonly load patients who are furanol-dependent. Uh, uh, bar uh, butabutol, we take them and put them on a longer acting and then stop it and let it self-taper. Um, you can also introduce a gabapentinoid for prophylaxis if you're worried, but the best thing to do is not get into that mess. Yep. Um, we have people that come to us in pain. In the VA, they're telling us that we should gradually try using gabapentin, not use so much opiates if we can, um, I'd stay away from doxepin, to be very honest. It's such a nasty drug. It gives you a horrible aftertaste, it, and it's got cardiotoxicity that's really quite significant. And, and I've, I've seen some very knowledgeable people push that beyond the uh, uh, 10 to 25 milligram sort of sedative dose up into the 100, 150. And, you know, you start looking at the electrocardiogram, and you're doing funny things to it, and you don't want that to happen, obviously. So mirtazapine's a... A nice drug. Okay, but the bottom line is you still have the person that's paying. Yeah. And we're trying to find some way to deal with their pain, which will have minimal effects. But you just said people get on gabapentin and it's screw up their whole life. No, I didn't say that. I said don't underestimate the power of gabapentin uh, at the hind end. It, 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 
It was marketed as a drug that was safe with benign consequences if you discontinue it. That's just not true. Some people, withdrawal for everyone as a general principle is a highly personal and somewhat unpredictable phenomenon. You can't look at a person, for example, who comes off three Vicodin a day and complains of World War III and say they're histrionic, and then somebody who's on 100 milligrams of hydrocodone a day and drops it down to 25 with no complaints of withdrawal and say with any certainty, well, they must have been dealing it. They must have been selling it because if they took it, they would definitely be in severe withdrawal. It doesn't work like that. So, you know, gabapentin can be a perfectly effective drug. The problem with the patients you just described is once you get into opioid therapy, even when you introduce a, a, a molecule that's more targeted towards the mechanism behind the pain, depending how big the opioid issue is, opioid reduction or elimination may not be a credible measure of success because it may be a secondary problem. You know, one of the consequences of chronic opiate therapy is diminished pain tolerance. Everybody on opioids feels pain more intensely than opioid-naive individuals. So when I've told that to patients, you know, even some of my fellows have gone, huh? Well, how, why are we calling them analgesics? And we're calling them analgesics because in the acute setting, the fracture responds brilliantly to an acute dose of, of an opioid, but chronically over time, the system resets. And that resetting lowers pain tolerance. And so an individual who's opioid naive can come in and is relatively easy to manage in a, in a cold orthopedic setting or even in trauma. Uh, but if they've been a heavy morphine user or methadone user and chronic, they're going to be nasty to manage for pain relief because they're going to need more and they're going to need it more frequently. PCA can be a very effective tool to use, fentanyl or hydromorphone being the drugs of choice. But if some widget throws in Demerol, which occasionally happened with PCAs in the old days, we had people seizing because they'd just keep hitting the Demerol and they had no analgesic effect. So there's a trade. Chronic opioid therapy costs. It doesn't mean it's a prohibitive cost, but it's a cost you always have to reassess. So the question is opioid hyperalgesia versus opioid tolerance and need for increasing dose. The, the, the concept of opioid hyperalgesia is more lab than, than you know, a clinical um, construct. It, do, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'm just not sure that there's a lot of evidence that people see it regularly. But by definition, hyperalgesia means you increase a dose, you give a dose of, of, of opioid, and the pain actually increases as the drug onsets, which is different than a person who's on a static dose of opioid perceiving a cold presser test. For example, if you took methadone patients, methadone maintenance patients, and, and if Howard and I were asked to, to do a cold presser test where we plunged our hand into ice water, you would think the person on methadone would be able to hold their hand in the ice water longer than two schmucks like Howard and I, but it's not true. Their ability to pull, their need to pull out 
of the cold sensation is going to be that much quicker in a chronic opioid, chronic methadone user. But if you gave Howard or I a five milligram dose of methadone and we'd been opioid free, we would hold our hands in significantly longer than anybody. And the reason is because in the short act, in the short run with a person who's getting an acute dose of morphine or morphine equivalents, it's acting as an analgesic. As you transition into longer periods of time on opioids, you're carrying a balance point where receptor downregulation occurs as a result of chronic opioid therapy, and that downregulation makes you less sensitive to other opioids that come in in an acute setting such as a fracture and more sensitive to assaults of pain that are novel. So everybody who's on chronic opioid therapy gets severe wimposis. I mean, that's what my wife calls it when I really struggle with, you know, my stubbed toe. That's male wimposis, which is different, I guess. But, but the, fa the fact is, people on, on chronic opioid therapies perceive pain, and we know that from methadone maintenance. I did methadone maintenance for years. It seems to be less of a problem with buprenorphine. But buprenorphine paradoxically upregulates receptors, whereas straight opioids, like methadone, downregulate receptors. Uh, how long, what you're asking is how long is the neuroadaptation go back from, quote, different on opioids as opposed to not on opioids, what it was before you had the initial dose? The, that's a real chicken and an egg because if you're talking about pain management, we have no clue. If you're talking about opiate addiction and maintenance therapy, we think we have some ideas, but the reality is in the, in the paradigm of opioid maintenance therapy. The theory behind it is that the individual you're replacing, you're, you're giving an exogenous opioid to, suffers from a dysregulated endogenous opioid system. Now, is that because they were built that way? They're genetically predisposed? Is it because they made bad choices as kids and got involved in, in drugs of a variety of kind, plus or minus opioids, and now have a messed up pleasure pathway, and opioids play a permissive role in the release of dopamine. This is one of the reasons why we can give alcoholics naltrexone and attenuate cravings um, in an alcoholic who otherwise drinks until they run out, pass out, or die. And, and that's because the mu pathway centrally plays a role in the expression of dopamine, which is the, the happy drug, the happy transmitter. And so if you have a person who is on methadone or on chronic opioids of any kind, whether they're getting it through a pain doctor or a maintenance program, some of those patients are going to fall into that category statistically of dysregulated opioid pathways. And they're characteristically the people who are never quite right emotionally. Their mood isn't quite right unless they're taking Percocets or Vicodin. or you know, They always seem to cycle through dysphoria and dysthymia, and then they get onto Percocets or they get onto Vicodin, and they're not great, but they're better. You put a person like that on a chronic opioid for pain management, and they do better, that's great, but when you take them off the opioid, if they were dysregulated before you started, they're gonna be dysregulated after. Statistically, people who go on to methadone maintenance and then choose to come off uh, succeed in slightly less than 50% of the cases. 
And the criteria for success, uh, how long you were on the program, was the dose adequate, which may, in fact, help you stay in the program. And then the third and the most important element is whose idea was it? But one of the things you should always tell patients when you're putting them onto a chronic opioid is that while the intent may be ultimately to discontinue, it may, in fact, uh, be difficult or impossible in some cases. That doesn't mean they're addicted. But it does mean that this permissive pathway isn't quite satisfied um, unless there's an exogenous opioid supplied. And the the challenge with this is one of the ways we used to treat impaired health professionals with opioid addiction is to put them onto naltrexone, chronic naltrexone. And if you can think the permissive role of opioids in releasing dopamine might be dysregulated, imagine if you completely block it. Those were some highly dysphoric um, intensivists and anesthesiologists who got messed up with fentanyl and, um, and then someone said, well, take this, it'll help. And some people killed themselves. Yeah? Um, I heard a while ago, I don't remember where I even read this before or where I was at a conference, but they said once you get on opiates for an extended period of time, you change your brain chemistry and your brain won't be the same brain as it was I don't know that there's any scientific data to support that. I, I mean, that, that's the chicken and an egg, because the the red herring, in my opinion, in the pain management world with opioids is iatrogenic addiction. Are we creating addicts um, through exposure? And and as Steve Pasek said uh, at the plenary a couple nights ago, the reality is exposure is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So undoubtedly, there are at-risk brains that everything you just said is probably quite true. But I don't know that there's any evidence that this is a universal phenomenon. I would bet those patients have multifactorial. Either they have a bad home life, they're depressed, they're anxious, sexual abuse, things of that nature. There are other confounding factors in that situation, most likely. I think before all of you guys collapse and die, and then we'll feel responsible. Marginally, admittedly, but we will feel responsible. Um, Thank you very much for coming, and uh, hopefully you found this helpful. And if you have any questions, come on down.